our panel uh, this afternoon is um, called Evolving Minds, um, and we have two speakers. Again, I'm going to introduce both of them um, at the start, and then the present will have will have questions. So our first speaker is um, Caroline Alscott. Um, Caroline is Professor of 19th Century British Art at the Courtauld Institute of Art, where she's taught since 1988. She's working on a book on aestheticism in art and morphology, and she's primary investigator on a collaborative interdisciplinary project on Victorian um, telegraphy, scrambled messages, scrambled messages, and is curating with Claire Pettit an exhibition derived from this project, Victorians Decoded Art and Telegraphy at the Guildhall Art Gallery, um, which is very excitingly um, due to open in about three months, so September 19th, and it runs up until January 2017. Um, and today she's going to talk to us about John Joseph uh, Murphy and her paper's titled At Once a Materialist and a Spiritualist. Um, next we then have Benjamin Morgan. Benjamin is Assistant Professor of English at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Outward Mind, Materialist Aesthetics in Victorian Science and Literature, is forthcoming with the University of Chicago Press. The book explores how writers such as Herbert Spencer, Walter Pater, William Morris and Vernon Lee um, returned to the discourse of aesthetics to embodied experience and the materiality of the arts. His current book project, In Human Scale, Form and Aesthetics in the Era of Climate Change, examines the cultural imagination of climate change from the 19th century to the present, um, and he's also a co-founder of the scholarly collective B21, Victorian Studies for the 21st Century. Uh, I think today he's going to speak to us about his, um, uh, from his first book project, um, and his talk is about aesthetic play in Alexander Bain and Herbert Spencer. So I'm going to hand over now to Caroline to answer. Thank you. Great, thanks. <coughs> um, John, uh, <laughs> Joseph John Murphy, I always get it the wrong way around. Um, Joseph John uh, Murphy, um, the author of Sonnets and Other Poems, Chiefly Religious, of 1890, was a retired linen merchant uh, and an officer of the Church of Ireland. His, um, uh, so if I can have the next, please. Uh, his three books on science and faith, published 1869 to 1893, and here you see uh, two of them. Um, the first one went into an important second edition at the end of the 70s. Uh, these books offer a detailed account of consciousness and its emergence in living beings. Murphy accepted the idea of evolution with certain caveats, Darwinian evolution. Um, he quibbles with Darwin on various points, um, most <coughs> importantly regarding the all-sufficiency of natural selection uh, as a mechanism for evolution. In common with a number of commentators, he seeks to find an accommodation between theology and evolutionary theory. In 1879, when Murphy published the, this revised second edition of his first book, Habit and Intelligence, the examiner commented on the mildness of his propositions. And I quote, all that he attempts to prove is the very modest thesis that although natural selection did most of the work of organic development, a divine intelligence came in occasionally to help it, as it were, over the most difficult parts. When theology is thus content 
to minimise itself in the domain of science, it would be cruel to insist on its total exclusion from the field. The time has come, this article concludes, when the ferocity of theological opposition to evolutionary theories of origins and embryology has died down. The reviewer notes a parallel with debates earlier in the century when geological suppositions about the time frame of creation first caused fury, then came to be accepted. In another article, the paper jokingly grouped Murphy's publication with work by Hinton, Herbert, Courtney and Billing as, and I quote, a batch of utterances from the centre, capital C, of contemporary thought, repelling the insinuation of connection with the revolutionary principles of the extreme left, capital E, capital L, um, represented in the main by Messrs. Tyndall and Huxley, end of quote. The theistic bent of Murphy's writings is represented uh, as offering a moderate corrective to what was perceived as the extreme far-left materialism of John Tyndall and Thomas Huxley. Huxley was the biologist um, notorious for his dispute on evolution with Archbishop Wilberforce at the British Association meeting of 1860 and his On the Physical Basis of Life, published in 1869, proposing that all organic substance is based on the single substance protoplasm and subject to mechanistic molecular forces. Tyndall, the physicist, who we've just been hearing about romping through the uh, mountains, uh, was notorious for his Belfast address delivered at the British Association meeting in 1874, where Lucretius, Darwin and Spencer were invoked in favour of the power of science to observe and explain the linked phenomena of the cosmos and the powerlessness of religious systems to interfere in this kind of analysis. Murphy is interested in the possibility that mind, or intelligence, is responsible for adaptation. Darwin and Darwinists, such as George Henry Lewis, Lewis track the adaptation of organisms when outward circumstances lead them to new habitual actions. Murphy insists that intelligence and not habit is responsible for adaptation. He says, selective adaptation is more than a mere capacity of the organism for modification under the law of habit. The power of selective adaptation to novel and unforeseen circumstances is intelligence and is not implied in the mere capacity for modification. In the book, Habit and Intelligence, he asserts that sentience is the condition of consciousness. No consciousness is possible without sensate being. By this he means the particular form of nervous response where the response to sensation is other than reflex. However, it's not, it is possible to have neural activity without sentience. This is the only form of neural activity in lower organisms. Drawing on close reading of Darwell, sorry, Darwell, Darwin and uh, Lewis, and a close reading of Carpenter, Bain, and other psychologists, um, the line between sentient and non-sentient organisms is set low down in the hierarchy 
of organic life. The centralization of nervous systems in spiders and insects, as well as in vertebrates, is taken as a clear indicator of consciousness. Elsewhere, he suggests that the possession of such specialized organs as the eyes may help to establish limit cases. He says, this is Murphy, higher up in the animal scale, sensation appears. The action of some, not all, of the nerve fibres on their ganglia produces sensation. We cannot tell where it begins. I think it is most likely that sensation begins where organs of special sense come into existence, and as eyes appear to be the most generally distributed of these in the animal creation, I think it most likely that sensation is nearly coextensive with the possession of eyes. He, he wouldn't agree with Spencer on that. Now, Spencer um, is interested in starfish um, having centralised um, nervous systems, for instance, and being um, uh, uh, objects that can experience um, uh, sentience. Murphy was, in fact, name-checked by Darwin for his challenge um, to Darwin, built on an objection voiced by the biologist G.J. Mylart uh, to Darwin's account of the gradual development of the eye. Um, it developed uh, gradually from undifferentiated skin uh, into a specialised organ uh, for seeing with. The coincidence of multiple features that occur in the eye could not all be explained, said Mylart and Murphy, by random variation offering advantages, and so being retained in the process of natural selection. Because where was the advantage in the earliest minimal changes? The eye is not a neutral choice then for Murphy uh, as the marker of sensate being. Murphy knows, notes Darwin's startling claims for the responsiveness uh, and sensitivity of plants amounting to something like agency in the movement and habits of climbing plants and the work Insectivorous Plants, also published in 1875. But he's not tempted to take his own theory of mind right down the scale of being. Darwin, on the other hand, did continue to press on this idea. By 1881, in his final publication, Darwin was assigning decision-making powers to eyeless earthworms. And the next slide, please. Now, in this paper, I want to set the idiosyncratic ideas of Murphy regarding mental function and its role uh, in driving the processes of morphological change against the work of Lawrence Alma Tadema. Um, and in so doing, I can draw attention to some of the themes of Alma Tadema. His work has been scrutinized for its readings of the ancient world and implied perspectives on the modern world and for its painstaking depiction of the pertinences of Roman environments, emphasising decadence rather than nobility. It hasn't been suggested that Alma Tadema took an interest in evolution or in the properties of organic and inorganic matter, far less that he showed an interest in mental processes and the relationship between body and mind. Spiritual issues, personal conscience and elevated ideas are apparently remote 
from the honeyed opulence um, uh, of everyday leisure and consumption that he portrays. If anything, his work is usually noted for its limited emotional range and its preoccupation with the surfaces and textures of stagey environments, stodgily backed up by the inclusion of documented historical objects. He was, according to his contemporary William Bell Scott, and I quote, troubled by no metaphysic, believing in no intellect or more soul than can look out of the actor's eye. End quote. Vacant gazing and simple wonder, covetousness or gratification generally occupy his figures rather than worshipful or pastoral attention. And the next slide, please. A dog doing tricks, um, uh, a juggler spinning eggs, a showroom assistant displaying wares are all faced with phlegmatic audiences. Ruskin considered the selection of decadent phases of Roman society and the jumbling together of silverware, marble, statuary and figures with apparent disregard for pictorial hierarchy to be a clear sign of, and in Ruskin's words, revolutionary, anti-clerical and anti-aristocratic sentiment. I'm not suggesting that the scandalously materialistic Almatadema knew Murphy's work, nor that he takes the same positions as the devout Murphy, who was, as we will see, recognised for his opposition to the revolutionary implications of thoroughgoing materialism. However, Almatadema's work displays an interest in transitions between levels of being and levels of consciousness which can usefully be discussed in relation to debates surrounding evolution. It's instructive to compare the formulation of mind and matter put forward by Alma Tadema with that by, uh, developed by Murphy. To put my hypothesis at its most minimal, there is an oddity about the status of matter that links the artist Alma Tadema to the theologian scientist Murphy. Murphy considers every sensation to leave a trace on the organism. The registration of sensation, therefore, the accumulation of traces, is at the root of memory. This is a standard position in physiological psychology of the period. Helmholtz's experiments on sensation are alluded to by Murphy. Um, memory, he says, this is Murphy, memory in its most rudimentary form is nothing more than a continued sensation such as the sensation of light continuing after a flash of light has passed. Uh, he, he also references Herbert Spencer. He says, Herbert Spencer believes that mind is a part and an evolved product of the world which surrounds it, and that these forms of thought, uh, thought regarding time and space, um, these forms of thought are the results of the action of the surrounding world upon the mind in experience. And yet Murphy cavils at the idea that the ability to recognise time, space and causality are effectively physiological constructs 
that become established in the emergent mind by these external impacts. He asks whether we should rather think that there is an intrinsic aspect of mind that recognises the external truth with regard to time, space and causality. And uh, following our discussion of the, of the last day and a half, um, uh, I think that we can um, uh, start to align this with uh, his um, uh, acceptance um, of a theory of um, a muscular sense. Um, but he's having a muscular sense, which is an aspect of mind and intelligence. And I think this is important to, um, uh, to emphasize. Uh, this characteristic of intelligence could be considered God-given. So he adopts swathes of evolutionary theory with regard to the emergence of mind and the role of repeated actions in forming mind and memory, but he retains a place for divine agency. He did not consider himself to be moving away from materialism or to be obliged to contest Spencer, Darwin or Carpenter on most points, but to be, as he puts it, at once a materialist and a spiritualist. And the next uh, slide, please. To introduce a motif from Alma Tadema here, um, I'm showing you his watercolour of 1879, strigils and sponges, where the ongoing assault on the body uh, of the water flow streaming over the back of the central figure is joined by the scraping of the arm of the figure on the right by the strigil and the fierce squeezing of the amarino in the fountain sculpture where a dolphin's tail wraps right round him. The shaping of substance and mentality through accumulation of repeated sensation is suggested by three substances in this picture. The pinkish marble with an aggregate structure visible beneath the fountain and behind the figures. Secondly, the foreground mosaic made up piecemeal. And thirdly, the sponge with its myriad apertures, um, uh, particularly this one visible in the foreground. The <coughs> um, creasing of the torso due to bending over under the jet of water is given a visual parallel in that foreground sponge, which appears to be squished over in the opposite direction. The figure on the left slides a large wet sponge up her thigh, and in the other hand she holds a strigil ready for use. Chrissy Bradstreet has written on the implications of the porousness of the sponge with respect to the structure of skin, the lodging of dirt, and the purity or impurity of women's bodies. Uh, I want to take the argument in a slightly different direction. Next slide, please. In the context of physiological psychology, the brain-like shape of the foreground sponge is hard to escape. Not just sensation, but the effects on mental life of repeated sensation is suggested. Multiple sense events force access to a nexus, which becomes the cerebrum, broadly curved over the clustered cerebellum and the stalks that are grouped together, sensory motor tract, medulla, spinal cord and cerebellum. Sense events 
established neural pathways. And so this figure is uh, reproduced in, um, in Murphy from Carpenter, from Carpenter's Human Physiology. Um, so the outer, uh, I don't know if I said this already, sense events established neural pathways. The outer objective world is squeezed into the tentatively coherent mental apparatus. Perception, consciousness, self-consciousness and memory are put together in minute fragments like a picture in mosaic. Uh, and the next slide, please. In a poem included in his collection of 1890, Murphy dwells on an image from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. God the potter, making men from clay in different forms as vessels for honourable and dishonourable purposes. In the formula of Murphy's poem, and I'm showing you the first two verses here, and then we'll in a minute look at um, three of the other verses. Uh, in the formula of Murphy's poem, the right shaping of the vessel is a process that occurs during uh, the extended time of mortal existence. Sin uh, can produce wrong shaping and result in the smashing of the vessel. Uh, and the next slide, please. Um, the, uh, listen. For Murphy, the problem with the biblical text is the implication of Calvinist predestination. If God forms the vessel, then how is it that man is guilty if he fails in virtue? If man is not guilty, then will and responsibility are redundant categories. This intractable paradox is argued, uh, uh, is, is answered by him in terms of humility and faith. The virtuous Christian accepts responsibility to exercise will on his own account, just as he accepts his place in creation and society. Part of this is faith in an ultimate revelation once mortal life has ended. In the parallel terms of the biological sciences, the clay is protoplasm, and the high and low life forms uh, that can be made from it. Murphy, in his biological theory, held the view that the making of a boundary between spiritually awakened man and the rest of creation was a mysterious aspect of mind, not to be fully revealed in this life, but nonetheless that there was a boundary. Uh, and the next slide, please. Uh, Murphy's imagery makes us look a little more carefully at Albert Adams' scene of a Roman emperor viewing wares uh, at a pottery shop. The full composition for a seven-foot-high canvas is shown in the outline sketch in Henry Blackburn's Academy Notes. It was subsequently cut down um, into three. So there are three remaining sections. Next slide, please. Um, the ascent from workshop to showroom, from slave to emperor, could be conceived of in relation to a hierarchy of being based overall on the protoplasmic clay. Cells splitting, as seen in the motif uh, on the top shelf uh, step there. Um, 
there are fruit, flowers, and vegetables um, on, a, on a lower shelf. Um, uh, we'll see in a minute down here. Um, the, um, they give way to the pieced together mosaic peacock um, that you see um, uh, on the left hand side here, this, this mosaic, um, and uh, to another creature, half fish, uh, half man, uh, in the mosaic painted um, above. Uh, and next slide, please. Um, on uh, the other fragments, uh, you can see that shelf of, of fruit and vegetables. Um, there is a, a graffitied um, mosaic on the wall which says Salve Lucre. Um, uh, and down here you see the, um, the workshop where the pots are being made on the, um, on the wheels. Um, Salve Lucre, graffitied on the wall, is hailed to financial gain. Um, but Alma Tadema perhaps puns in English. Not just financial gain, but also organic growth is celebrated. The energy environment is evoked by the hoisting of wares up the stairs. Um, but then, is there also a de-evolutionary um, suggestion here? The generic jumbling of composition um, noted by the critics and actually uh, something that's familiar from many of Alma Tadema's pictures um, contributes uh, to a sense of disorganisation. Um, and I wonder whether the cutting up of the canvas is also a de-evolutionary move, something like the smashing of the spoiled wares in Murphy's poem. Darwinian theory shows that Life emerges from a simple germ in the depth of time. Life forms undergo morphological change, diversification and complexification in the infinitesimally slow process of evolution. Murphy proposes that mental life similarly develops from the germ of sensation. He says the organism is a mass of vitalised matter having very complex structure and is developed out of a minute, structureless mass of gelatinous substance, in other words, protoplasm, and similarly, the complex aggregate of the mental functions is developed out of sensation. The fact of sensation, then, this limited fact of sensation, is fundamental to mental activity, uh, to intelligent life, and for Murphy is the underlying foundation of mind. It's the common basis for mental activity in an extended array of animal life from spiders upwards. He explicitly makes the point by means of this analogy with the underlying phenomenon of biological matter, protoplasm, uh, which was characteristic of primal life and is still to be found in all organic cells. In other words, as protoplasm is to biological entities, so sensation is to entities with minds. Consciousness and self-consciousness rely on the possession of a centralised nervous system, only to be found in the higher arthropods, 
such as insects and spiders and vertebrate and invertebrates. Self-consciousness and its correlative perception depend on the differentiation between self and world. The root of this, he says, following Spencer and Carpenter, is the exercise of voluntary muscular effort and the encounter of resistance in the objective world. Murphy draws on Carpenter's human physiology for his account of the function of the nervous system. He conceives of nervous currents in wave form like electricity, but not actually identical to electricity, passing from receptors through nerves and ganglia to the cerebellum. <coughs> Equally, they pass back to the organism's exterior margins uh, as motor response is produced. Just as an electrical current can produce induction in a neighbouring conductor, Murphy posits that a nerve fibre can produce excitation in a neighbouring nerve fibre. He suggests that perhaps the will works through a similar act of induction uh, on a fibre running along uh, the path of the nerve. Murphy has logically to offer multiple drivers for evolution, at the very least one for organic beings that do not have the power of thought and another for beings that have sentience. Plants, uh, amoebae, amoebae, amoebae uh, and other eyeless beings are not folded into the theory of evolution driven by the power of intelligence. Insisting on a sliding scale between conscious and unconscious thought, as he does, his theory involves an extremely capacious category of intelligence, but it doesn't take intelligence as driver fully down uh, into the lower orders of organic life. Um, in creatures endowed with sentience, however, the pulse of intelligence is there to form and modify organic matter. Indeed, it is akin to growing tissue. Some of his most fascinating passages are those that dwell on the generative ability of the mind. And next slide, please. As we read his remarks on the active aspects of minimal consciousness, we can think of motionless insects, basking fish, coiled snakes, and roosting birds, as well as sleeping or resting human beings. He says, uh, oh, um, next please. He says, it is a mistake to think that in consciousness and memory, the mind can ever be quite passive. Even when will is quiescent and the conscious mind is most nearly passive, it maintains an activity comparable, if not to that of an animal in motion, at least to that of a growing and developing tissue. Consciousness is a state of activity and total mental inactivity is possible only in unconsciousness. In this passage, his category, unconsciousness, is that state below the active alternative unconscious thought, which is proper to sentient beings. The key argument is carried by that word developing. The cellular structure of the organism bulks up, maturing as an individual specimen, and in common with all plant and animal life, can participate in evolutionary development. In the mind, there are similarly twin aspects of liveliness, growing 
and developing. He has accepted the idea from Carpenter and others that activity produces organic effects and has focused on the way that mental activity is a participant in this. He sees a transfer between mind and body so that the growth and development of mind does not merely produce changes in the mind, such as the development of memory or the awakening of a spiritual sense, it also produces changes in overall physiology. Uh, next slide, please. How can this be the case, given the apparently abstract nature of thought and the non-muscular character of mind? First of all, he considers the idea that minute actions can have gigantic effects. So a sea captain can move a lever which turns round an ocean liner. He references Herschel's idea, carried further by Maudsley, that the will can produce minute chemical or electrical changes in the brain, just as nerves and muscles can be shown to produce phosphates and acids. If the will participates in the energy economy of the body, then it can be seen to influence physiology. He struggles with the idea that this may harness the will to determinism, thus obviating the idea of truly free will because of the regularity and predictability of chemical and electrical phenomena, but the concept that reassures him is indeterminism. Indeterminism is identified in uh, recent work in geometrical theory by him in terms of the occurrence of crossover points producing alternative pathways uh, for the same formulae. Um, he located also in the processes of biological diversification in Darwinian evolution. If mathematics and biology can be seen to include or allow for indeterminism, then a non-determinist account of mind does not need to turn away from the scientifically verifiable stuff of the natural world. Mind can be fully material in its operation and yet can be a realm of freedom. Body tissue can be indeterminate and so be prone to the directing force of mind. The shaping force of intelligence hovers in Murphy's writings between the earthly, the lengthening, the lengthening of a thin or beak driven over generations by the creature with its intelligent efforts to achieve its purposes, to the divine adaptations that result from the shaping intelligence of God. The intelligence that he writes about is at once human and divine. Uh, it's at once uh, material and spiritual. He doesn't routinely envisage an intervention coming from without, but he doesn't have to, because the creaturely intelligence uh, that he discusses is, in his view, divinely endowed. Thank you. Um, so I will set this up by just briefly mentioning an exchange um, yesterday at our reading workshop, I was very happy when Isabel Armstrong raised this question about uh, the politics of Bain's understanding of aesthetics. So we were 
talking a little bit about Bain's idea that um, aesthetic pleasures were those that were shareable by a community rather than those that were um, like the pleasure of a meal that you could only have on your own. And we had a bit of a discussion about whether this was, uh, whether this implied a kind of democratic model of, um, of aesthetic experience. And it seems to me like this is a really important but difficult question to figure out as physiology and aesthetics come into contact um, at the end of the 19th century. So on the one hand, um, the question I'm thinking about is, it seems as though uh, returning the discourse of aesthetics to the body democratizes it in a certain way, makes it available to everyone, not just specialists. But then on the other hand, it seems to reinscribe a lot of these hierarchies of uh, race and gender and class uh, that govern uh, the kind of Spencerian progressivist evolutionary thought. Um, so this talk is kind of an effort to disentangle or decipher um, how we might think about the, some of the uh, political and conceptual implications of uh, Baines and Spencer's aesthetic. Would it be possible to read a poem by tabulating the sensations produced by individual words? This was the gambit of the science writer and novelist Grant Allen, who asserted in his first book, Physiological Aesthetics, that the object of poetry is to arouse the largest possible volumes of the ideal aesthetic thrill. To support this claim, Allen encouraged his readers to engage in the simple, simple introspective experiment of focusing their attention either upon some lists of poetical words that Allen provided or uh, the reader's favorite lines of verse. Allen proposes that the reader will observe that on attentively conning over any of these above lists, or still better, some familiar descriptive passage in his favorite poet, he's conscious of a faint emotional wave varying in intensity according to the number of pleasurable sensations ideally aroused. This thrill is the office of the poet to arouse, to sustain, and to economize. So this is what poetry is, kind of putting words on a page that produce thrills in readers. This account of poetry as a technique for producing waves of pleasure grounds an analytical practice for Allen that requires disaggregating poems and indeed all works of art into their constituent elements. Allen repeatedly offers lists of which words and forms and colors are beautiful and which are not according to their capacity to produce these thrills or waves. So for Allen, all such words as cool, fresh, buoyant, warm, easy, pure, and those relating to health, repose, and sleep are poetical. Hot, close, weary, cold, chilly, and words relating to disease, hunger, thirst, or restlessness are the opposite. As, uh, as this passage suggests, Allen's argument frequently risks disintegrating into a list itself. It will come as no surprise, then, that Allen defines artworks as great synthetic totals, sums of stimuli that work in concert to produce complex somatic effects. This theory of art and literature was intended as a direct rebuttal to John Ruskin's claim in the first volume of Modern Painters that any inquiry into why humans take delight in beauty is futile. So for Ruskin, um, Ruskin argues that the exact mechanism of aesthetic pleasure uh, is indecipherable. No further reason can be given than that the simple will of the deity, uh, it was the simple will of the deity that we should be so creative. So there, you, you can't explain this beyond a sort of divine act, uh, endowment of uh, a capacity for the aesthetic. Allen, by contrast, looked for answers in the periods of two leading scientific accounts of the mind, Alexander's Bain, Alexander Bain's physiological associationism and Herbert Spencer's evolutionary psychology. Allen's account of the mechanism of aesthetic pleasure uh, was well-received by some of the most influential progressive intellectuals of the 1870s, both in Britain and abroad. 
in part because exchange what was thought of as metaphysical abstraction of uh, traditional aesthetics for a kind of physicalist description that was perceived as more intellectually valid. So this book, Physiological Aesthetics, which we read portions of yesterday, was a sort assigned by George Santayana in his Harvard philosophy courses on aesthetics uh, in the 1890s. William James wrote an unsigned review of it for the nation, praising Allen's ambitions. Um, and even in 1922, in their survey of aesthetic philosophy, um, C.K. Ogden, I.A. Richards, and James Wood noted that the only English contribution to the theory of aesthetics widely read on the continent in a century and a half which elapsed between Hogarth's analysis of beauty and the essays of Vernon Lee and Clyde Bell is Grant Allen's Physiological Aesthetics. So that's kind of an astonishing claim, that the only widely read volume between Hogarth and Vernon Lee and Clyde Bell uh, is this book by Allen. So today I want to suggest that one of the basic innovations of physiological aesthetics for Alan, Bain, and Spencer was a rescaling of the unit of aesthetic experience. By contrast with Enlightenment and Romantic aesthetic philosophy of Kant, Hegel, and Schiller, British psychophysiologists outlined a new way of understanding the experience of art and beauty, not in terms of a subject who judges, but in terms of events that take place within the body and the nervous system. Discussions of the experience of beauty among British scientists of mind often turned on two key principles. First, the experience of art was to be understood as an encounter in which physical responses took primacy over meaning. And then second, the time of this encounter uh, was contracted and dehistoricized, reduced to a single moment of stimulus and response. Um, so this, my claim here takes up a proposition that's been discussed by art historians, uh, including Jonathan Crary, Robert Bain, and Martha Ward, um, who've traced the effects of scientific psychology on late 19th century painting and aesthetic theory, especially in France, uh, for painters like Seurat and Pissarro. So Crary writes that by the end of the 19th century, um, the question of meaning in art was not representation, but a relation of forces. Art is not a semiology, but a physics. Um, this is the idea that I'm interested in. Uh, Ward similarly observed that just as the psychophysical aesthetic obviated in theory the need for history or memory, it anticipated an ideal state of being in a timeless future. So this is the idea of kind of a temporal contraction to a single moment. So for Ward and Crary, uh, this is understood as a feature of late 19th century French painting. Um, but this idea of art as a kind of timeless physics had been extensively explored in conceptual terms by British writers, including Allen, who had abandoned the rhetoric of human faculties in favor of, more, of a more fragmented and materialist rhetoric of nerves and emotional waves, uh, with the aim of a fuller depiction of the body's participation in the production of aesthetic effects. Um, the, then my, my kind of largest claim here is that physiological aesthetics uh, reframe some of our canonical narratives within Western thought about the shaping power of aesthetic experience on human subjectivity. Um, the idea that the aesthetic domain, as Kant and Schiller influentially argued, affords access to a kind of undetermined realm of play. So this is kind of a classic narrative in Western aesthetics. With German, within German aesthetic thought, the experience of play described an escape from the laws of nature and defined an essentially human experience. Play forms an important aspect of the educative effects of aesthetic experience for Kant, who writes about a free play of the faculties, and for Schiller, who writes about play as a kind of experience of being undetermined either by moral laws or uh, by the sort of scientific laws of nature, kind of imagined, imagined uh, access to freedom. Bain and Spencer, I think, are interesting for returning the idea of play to the realm of nature 
while still retaining the notion that some version of aesthetic experience or beauty shapes subjectivity. Um, but because they disaggregate the subject or the individual into constituent elements, the shaping is understood by them to take place not at the level of a kind of abstract subject or self, but more but either at the macro scale of the species or the micro scale of the nervous system. So this understanding of aesthetic education is re-inscribed at uh, the level of species development or at the level of kind of ontogenetic change of the individual. So I'll start with, uh, by talking a little bit about Alexander Bain and then move to Herbert Spencer and then in closing say a few things about how I think this is interesting for um, idealist and romantic aesthetics. Historians of science have often described Bain's writing on the mind as affecting a transition from 18th century associationist philosophies of mind to 19th century physiological psychology, an integration of mind into nature that took place between about 1840 and 1880. Aesthetic feeling was among the most significant of the emotions transformed by this naturalization of mind. Not only had aesthetic judgment long been a significant matter of concern within British philosophies of mind, British poetic and literary theory had often grounded themselves in philosophy, in philosophy and science of the mind, um, including by turning to the writings of David Hartley and Joseph Priestley. It was perhaps to be expected then that when Bain took on the project of giving a physiological ba uh, physiologically based account of sensation, emotion, will, and intellect, that aesthetic judgment would register for him as a key area of human experience deserving special consideration. The arts play a significant role in both of Bain's major works on the science of the mind. In the, in the senses and the intellect, Bain describes literary tropes as particularly well-suited to, as he puts it, convey scientific notions and abstractions. Uh, and he describes Bacon and Shakespeare as especially rich with illustrations of the principles that he was describing in conceptual terms. Bain expounds more fully on the arts and the emotions and the will, particularly in a chapter on the aesthetic emotions, um, which is part of Bain's 11-fold taxonomy of emotions, which is very interesting, but I won't go into here. So within this taxonomy, some emotions like wonder, terror, and love are so kind of fundamental that they're almost entirely physiological or very clearly related to physiological events. Others like self-regard or uh, moral sensibility are the result of uh, succeeding circumstances and associations built up over time. For Bain, aesthetic feeling is of, the, is of this latter, more associated category. Um, performing on the fine arts, a similar sort of analysis that he performs on the human mind, Bain sets out to catalog what he calls aesthetic prime movers, the agents that produce impressions of sublimity, beauty, grace, harmony, and proportion. Um, some of these prime movers or agents are things like rhythm, melody, cadence, <coughs> symmetry, shape, or order, things that are fundamental to uh, aesthetic representation. Um, so this model of the aesthetic is reducible to discrete qualities, um, both displaces agency from the observer to the aesthetic object, and disaggregates persons and things into constituent elements. For Bain, elements like curves and angles take on an important role because they illustrate the difference between certain things which are beautiful naturally and certain things that become beautiful by association. So curves appeal for Bain to the primitive sensibility of the eye, partly because when you swing your arm, it goes in a curved motion, so a curve is then pleasing. Straight lines, by contrast, are unnatural and difficult for the eye to follow. Um, but this doesn't mean that they're uh, necessarily ugly. You learn to associate the straight line with things like um, strength or, uh, or, um, or grandeur, and then find them beautiful eventually. So 
So similarly, music is a compound for band of discrete elements, each of which is calculated to pleasurably thrill the human organism. The elaborate music of modern times is a vast aggregate of harmony with the union of numerous voices of instruments and is calculated to sustain a current of various and prolonged excitement. With regards to poetry, some consonants as the liquids L, M, N, R are soft upon the ear and the mutes B, P, T, K are abrupt and hard. Words like bed, dip, and cut, as well as most slang, are therefore harsh utterances appealing only to children and savages. Wow. So you can see there that Allen is directly sort of plagiarizing this argument that he gets in physiological aesthetics from Bain. Um, so as the reference to savages uh, suggests, um, Bain's naturalization of aesthetic judgment, uh, I think we can all see powerfully occludes social or cultural determinants of aesthetic pleasure and takes as the relevant temporal frame of inquiry the ontogenetic development of the individual organism. Um, this sort of story of association over time that builds uh, into a coherent self. Um, from this perspective, I think Bain's aesthetics would look to us like it instantiates a very uh, intractable and insidious version of what Marxist and deconstructive theorists in the 1980s and 1990s often described as the ideology of the aesthetic, the idea that by aspiring towards universal validity, the discourse of aesthetics tends to naturalize and obscure the contingent cultural and historical foundations of aesthetic judgments. Um, but by contrast with Kant, for whom this universality obtains at the level of communal assent, so I imagine, for Kant, I imagine that you must find this thing pleasing that I also find pleasing, Bain locates universality at the level of human physiology. So our sense of beauty is universal because we all share the same uh, sort of organ organized um, structure of our bodies. This shift has the effect, I think, of deriving aesthetic norms from nature. Because social norms constrain action uh, for Bain, pent up emotional waves can become a source of pain. Art, therefore, serves a special function. It makes available a certain kind of freedom that for Bain constitutes pleasure. The effusive arts of song, the drama, music, the dance guide the expression of feeling into the appointed channels, and the effect is to heighten or prolong the genial influence of the diffusion. When these arts uh, chance to fit with an emotional wave, they take place of the wild and transient outburst of untutored nature. The free flow of articulate utterance particularly satisfies the outgoing impulses of passionate excitement, heightening pleasure, and assuaging pain. Bain argues, in other words, that because so much of our socialized life within civilization is characterized by a painful constraint of the emotions that we would otherwise give uh, free expression to, Art becomes a kind of artificial or tutored way of opening an outlet for nervous waves uh, that are emanating from the brain but that are kept back um, because of certain norms uh, that we have to follow. The beautiful curve in this context makes available a safe form of ease and abandon. So this means that the paradigmatic scene of Bain's aesthetic theory is not one in which a person contemplates a painting but one in which curves or lines or vowel sounds act upon nerves and muscles, producing chains of responses that aggregate into complex emotions. The temporality of this encounter at first looks instantaneous, but if we understand it within the context of Bain's conceptual framework uh, in relation to his associationism, we see that the very idea of association implies a future moment at which the, we might see a rigid angle and uh, associate it with a feeling of respect that's recalled and reaffirmed. 
In this way, I think Bain renders a familiar philosophical narrative about aesthetic education in the language of early neurophysiology, imagining that art might train the individual by directly forming his or her nervous system. If aesthetic experience offers an avenue to a new kind of self, this self does not take the form of an abstract subject engaged in complex acts of rational deliberation. Instead, refracted through the language of physiology, the aesthetic domain is transformed into a series of minimal responses that appear as points of contact between the human nervous system and the materiality of a perceived object. Um, so, so far I've suggested that Bain's writing on aesthetic pleasure can be understood as confining attention to very small units of aesthetic experience, a kind of scaling down of the scene of aesthetic judgment to the nerve, the emotional wave, the curve, um, the vowel, but it's, or the consonant more, more usually. But at the same time that a physiological account of the mind was affecting these kinds of contractions and reductions, Emergent evolutionary conceptions of mind moved in almost the exact opposite direction, resituating what Bain described as discrete physiological events as evolutionary adaptations. The most influential proponent of this evolutionary rewriting of physiological psychology was, of course, Herbert Spencer, who, in a lengthy 1860 review um, of the emotions and the will, praised the book, but envisioned an even more ambitious natural history of the mind. Spencer outlined the psychology that would not merely describe how the physical side of emotions could be traced within the nervous system of the individual, but that would comparatively trace the gradation of emotions across three spectra that he identifies. So the first um, for Spencer is the evolution of emotions up through the various grades of the animal kingdom. Uh, the second is the gradation from lower to higher human races. Uh, and the third is gradation from infants to adults. So Spencer wants us to think, to rethink Bain in relationship to these um, very hierarchical scales. Spencer proposed that the aesthetic emotions were a significant area of inquiry for a comparative psychology that would take both human and non-human consciousness under its purview, arguing that there are aesthetic emotions common among ourselves that are scarcely in any degree experienced by some inferior races, as for instance, those produced by music. Aesthetic sensitivity to music, thus represented for Spencer a barometer, a direct barometer of civilization. So on Spencer's view, as biological organisms improve as the result of progressive evolutionary adaptations, they no longer need to devote as much energy to mere survival. This means that there is excess energy that has to be dissipated at first in play, an activity that's shared by humans and animals. But as civilizations also progress, play becomes ever more refined into the practices of the fine arts. A widespread cultural investment in beauty, which is defined by Spencer by uselessness, therefore um, correlates evolu evolution with civilization. So the more um, evolved you are, the more civilized you are, the more widespread will be um, the arts. In developing this line of reasoning, Spencer follows Bain in attending to the smallest, or in his words, most primitive elements of aesthetic response. But by contrast with Bain, he situates these elements within much longer scales of time. In his first sustained treatment of art, The Origin and Function of Music, Spencer traces the pleasures of art to the phenomenon of reflex action. The essay begins with a dog, Spencer names him Carlo, who sees his owner approaching, begins to bark, and wax his tail. What Carlo teaches the reader, according to Spencer, is that emotions express themselves as muscular excitements. All, uh, this is his language, all feelings are muscular stimuli. A human smiling is therefore exactly analogous to a dog's tail wagging. Um, and this 
we may recognize as a clause of Bain's physiological theory, um, and Spencer indeed refers his readers, um, this is first published in Fraser's uh, magazine, to Bain's work on emotion. But at this point in the essay, Spencer transforms the kind of account that we've seen in Bain into a basis for speculation about human and species history that operates at a much longer scale, drawing evidence from Greek poetry and Asian boatmen whose songs are taken to be survivals of ancient chants to show that Western art is the latest development in a progression of animal behaviors originating with Carlo's wagging tail um, and culminating in uh, British poetry. It is here that we can begin to see how Spencer rebuilds the minimal physiological event into a new kind of sweeping aesthetic narrative. For Spencer, music uh, serves the function of refining the human capacity to communicate emotion. This is fundamental for Spencer to the very existence of a social world. Um, so Spencer argues that the musical modulation of speech gives life to otherwise dead words in which the intellect utters its ideas and so enables the hearer not only to understand the state of mind they accompany, but partake of that state. Fellow feeling or sympathy are thus made possible by the musicality of speech. Um, so this is, you know, the, the, uh, in the sort of age of George Eliot, to place, to make sympathy kind of an outcome of an evolutionary capacity for music, musical speech, I think suggests how uh, kind of the stakes of the claims that Spencer is making. So this, the importance of resituating the sensitivity to music within deep uh, time, within evolutionary scales of time, is that it reveals how an evolved capacity for musical expression affords entry into civil society. In a chapter on the aesthetic sentiments added to the 1872 edition of Principles of Psychology, Spencer generalizes this line of argument, arguing that all aesthetic pleasure is experienced as small muscular adjustments and physical feelings and reveals that the human species is advancing towards ever more uh, refined possibilities of feeling and artistic expression. The capacity for play provides significant evidence for this claim in that it reveals that certain powers, um, a dog's now useless predatory impulse is one example, um, must relieve themselves by simulated actions once they are no longer necessary to survival. So a dog, instead of actually fighting, will play at fighting. And for Spencer, this is an expression of a kind of leftover evolutionary energy that has to be discharged in some other way. Spencer maps the development from play to simple mimetic dances to the more developed aesthetic products of ancient civilization to, finally, the current state of affairs, decreasingly predatory and increasingly peaceful, uh, in which excess powers must be discharged through artistic expression. Any present instance of aesthetic pleasure or indeed forms like the novel or entire domains of art such as music become recognizable as nothing more than a transient moment within an almost unimaginably long series of adaptations, raising the questions of which aesthetic what aesthetic practices or pleasures may have looked like in the distant past, um, and also what they might look like in the future, so the arts might become something entirely different um, in 100,000 or 500,000 years. The physiological event operative in Bain's aesthetics thus becomes for Spencer both a symptom and an engine of evolutionary progress. Spencer optimistically sees no end to the upward path hewn by the capacity to appreciate beauty. The aesthetic activities in general may be expected to play an increasing part in human life as evolution advances, he writes. The order of activities to which the aesthetic belong will, be, will hereafter be extended. A growing surplus of energy will bring a growing proportion of the aesthetic activities and gratification. 
So if you're Herbert Spencer, this is kind of your version of aestheticism. Um, aesthetic play thus uh, acquires great significance for the educative effects of the arts uh, on the species as a whole. Um, so just to very briefly recap, the two, the two things that I'm trying to identify in Bain and Spencer are on the one hand a contraction of uh, the aesthetic or writing about the aesthetic to this uh, scale of very small or instantaneous event in Bain, um, the, and then a reinterpretation of that event in Spencer within a scale of evolutionary time. And in both of these cases, what I want to suggest um, not only is play a significant aspect of this uh, account, um, but they're also leading towards a different way of thinking about the idea of aesthetic education, or the idea that the aesthetic sort of transforms or shapes or makes possible something like society. Um, so in closing, I'll uh, say a little bit about how I think each of these accounts um, might interact with some of our canonical ways of thinking about those stories about the relationship between art and society. Um, so I suggested a moment ago that it's tempting to see these accounts of aesthetic experience as fundamentally irreconcilable with those of people like Kant or Schiller in as far as uh, physiological aesthetics commits to an extremely strong naturalization of the mind. Um, this, this commitment to naturalization is uh, directly and self-consciously opposed to earlier faculty psychology on which Enlightenment aesthetics uh, depends. But I think what's particularly striking about Baines and Spencer's thought, which would later be recapitulated by Allen and taken up within American universities and psychology laboratories, is that even though it's highly reductionist and biologistic, it closely resonates with philosophical accounts of aesthetic experience that similarly recognize some kind of alliance between play and the educative effect of the arts. So Spencer himself, it turns out, recognized this connection, but either suppressed it or didn't work very hard to figure it out. He opens the chapter on aesthetic sentiments and principles of psychology with the observation that many years ago I met with a quotation from a German author to the effect that the aesthetic sentiments originate from the play impulse. I do not remember the name of the author, and if any reasons were given for this statement or any inferences drawn from it, I cannot recall them. Um, so this is, of course, Schiller that uh, Spencer is having a hard time calling to mind. Um, it, it seems plausible, actually, that he would not have uh, recalled this. Um, I've looked through his works for references to Schiller, and um, there's only one. He didn't read German. Um, so it's, it's probably true that he's simply ignorant of uh, the fact that he's referring to one of the major accounts of aesthetic education in Western Canada. So I think it's worth exploring the connection that Spencer either suppresses or ignores here. Not only because Spencer's aesthetics gives a dramatically different inflection to the idea that play is a central component of the appreciation of beauty, but also because Spencer's account was widely debated by European psychologists who often saw it as a scientific explanation of Schiller's thought. So in 1884, Jean-Marie Guillot identified as the distinctive contribution of the English school of aesthetics, its illumination of the role of play in the evolution of living beings, um, but objected that Spencer's version of the aesthetic was too broad. Uh, Giuseppe Sergi, in 1894, wrote a physiology of aesthetic emotion titled Dolore e Piacere, that defended Spencer against Guillot. Um, Carl Bruce, in 1898, uh, wrote a book called The Play of Man, um, that also recognized Spencer as having set Schiller's theory on scientific <coughs> 
footing. So all of these people are recognizing that Spencer is doing something interesting in relationship to the German tradition. This uptake of play within scientifically afflicted accounts of the aesthetic can help us understand the common territory between philosophical and physiological accounts of mind and emotion. The idea of play is then central to modern aesthetic uh, thought since Kant's analytic of the beautiful and the critique of the power of judgment, which distinguishes between mere agreeableness and sensation and the pleasure felt in judgments of the beautiful. The latter involves the free play of the faculties of cognition. Free play is Kant's preferred metaphor because it describes a lack of determination about ideas uh, of what a thing should be, and this play for Kant produces pleasure because the faculties of imagination and understanding become, during the judgment of beauty, reciprocally expeditious. It's a very compressed account of Kant, but we'll just leave it there. Um, this account of aesthetic pleasure as a harmonious play of the faculties is distinct from the pleasures of the senses, um, or the agreeable, which for Kant are not free because they're tied to um, the domain of nature, to direct uh, pleasures of the body. Play is thus central to one of the most important distinctions in post-Kantian aesthetics between that which merely pleases the senses and that which sparks genuine aesthetic reflection. Kant's link between aesthetic judgment and free play was taken up by Schiller in his letters on the aesthetic education of man of 1794, uh, but Schiller gave it such a different inflection that his letters are often understood as a creative misreading of Kant. In the 14th letter, Schiller proposes the existence of a play instinct or drive, a spieltrieb, that opens a space between two domains of law, physical necessity and moral necessity. Play suspends both of these laws, rendering, in Schiller's words, our formal as well as our material disposition contingent. It is because play offers access to this feeling of free freedom or free autonomy that Schiller makes the famous assertion that man only plays when he is in the fullest sense of the word a human being, and he is only fully a human being when he plays. For Schiller, this domain of fully human free play is interestingly foreshadowed within the domain of non-human nature, which seems to betray certain capacities for play, including, surprisingly, among trees, who Schiller writes about as expressing fecundity and joyful movement that mirror the higher freedoms of human play. So this realm of freedom opened up by play ultimately provides the basis for Schiller's well-known and controversial aestheticization of political life. The aesthetic state is the only means for realizing a society that can be merely possible by leveraging forces of nature and merely morally necessary by leveraging ethical laws. Um, it gives us the capacity to choose to participate in uh, free society instead of being in, uh, um, uh, induced or required to participate. Interpreters of Schiller and Kant often understood this alliance of play and aesthetics as opening up uh, a relationship between politics and aesthetic value. Uh, Paul de Mann argues that Schiller's emphasis on freedom reveals a political ideology of aesthetics and its emphasis on humanism. Um, art is, in fact, what defines humanity in the broadest sense, de Mann writes. Mankind, in the last analysis, is human only by ways of art. More recently, Jacques Rancière embraces a more sympathetic reading of Schiller, um, writing that Schiller describes a plot within which form subjugates matter and the self-education of mankind is its emancipation from materiality. Uh, Rancière goes on to write that Schiller gives us a way of thinking about a non-polemical, consensual framing of a common world. So Dumont and Rancière have almost exactly opposite readings of Schiller. Dumont understands it as a kind of ideology. Rancière sees in Schiller a kind of utopianism. 
But they both uh, share the understanding that the most significant political value of aesthetic thought lies in the idea that art, by invoking a capacity for play, affords access to a domain of freedom. So Spencer and Bain. Spencer and Bain's account of aesthetic experience as a nervous or muscular discharge of pleasurable energy facilitated by many millennia of biological development, I think both participates in and transforms these philosophical accounts of aesthetic experience as affording access to a domain of freedom and providing a point of entry into political life. From one perspective, the thought of British physiological and evolutionary psychologists clearly reflects a naturalization of aesthetic judgment that has the effect of inscribing the period's hierarchies of race and civilization within the physiology of the senses and the emotions. And I think we're all readily able to identify those movements uh, within these texts. But it may also open up an alternative way of understanding Ranciere's conception of a common world, one that is not limited to humans, and thereby foreshadows an anti-anthropocentric politics of aesthetics that I think is of considerable interest at a moment when various strains of posthumanist critical thought from animal studies to new materialism are trying to rethink things like the aesthetic from a position in which uh, humans are made less central. Precisely because Spencer invites readers to recognize human capacities for aesthetic experience in terms of gradations that extend deep into the natural world, he invites questioning about who or what might be a participant within the common world to which Ranciere often refers as opened up by the domain of the aesthetic, and doesn't subscribe to what Demand describes as Schiller's humanist ideology insofar as he understands aesthetic experience as open to animals as well. Spencer, who begins an essay on aesthetics by examining the wagging of a dog's tail, identifies a position from which one may see this world as open to non-human participants. It's from this perspective that we can see that the radical expansion of temporal scale within minimal within which uh, Bain's minimal aesthetic responses were situated, transforms the aesthetic itself, rendering its association with human autonomy highly unstable. So if we return our attention to that uh, moment that I began with, Alan's list of words that do or do not give an aesthetic thrill, that seems a little bit comical on its own terms, I think it actually has a significant capacity um, to get us to rethink whether the physiological dimension of responses to poetry um, can work against an anthropocentric view of aesthetic experience as open only to human beings.